Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. Welcome again to the CBC this morning. In the first service we did, my wife and daughter up on the stage and we did a little parent dedication. I made sure to commit to raising my kid in the ways of Jesus just in case there was any doubt, okay? Um, it was really good. It was beautiful. And, and this week, we've known it's been coming for a little while. And so Sarah and my wife, we've been just talking about how we got to the point where our kid's over a year old and what happened um, and if it was a good idea. And she's been sick all week. Um, and yesterday we went to a baby shower. Uh, some very good friends of ours have been trying for a while, and they have their first kid on the way in a couple months, and it's really sweet. This week, to show up to this house, and the first thing I did was ask the soon-to-be father, hey, is the nursery done yet? And this is the first kid, and so he, he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, it's been done for like seven months, you know, because you're so excited. And they got showered all these gifts, and I did not have the heart to tell them, you're not going to need any of those, just the boxes. You know, I just wanted to look at them and say, it's so beautiful, though. And really why I say that is because Genesis Genesis 1 paints this picture, and I love the analogy of a kid coming into the world, the analogy of a kid coming into the world as one in which we see the heart of God. Because God created for six days, and he spent all that time cultivating a good world just so when he brought us into it on the last day, he could say, it's really, really good, and I made this for you because I made you in my image. Now show people what that looks like. And what I love about Colossians 1, we're in a series called Jesus Above All, and we started it last week. And why I bring that up is because that is the ideal, this moment when you have your first kid on the way, and everything is ready and good, and then the kid, you give birth to the kid, you have this moment in the hospital room where everything is perfect. You have this moment where everything is in place that you've been planning for and prepping for and going to classes for and it's finally here and it's good and it's serene and it's peaceful and that is the picture that's painted in Genesis 1. That's what God created. It's a Hebrew concept that we use called shalom that, that kind of embodies what God meant when he said, this is the cultivated creation that I made for the world. It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's Genesis 1. That's what God created. And, and why we started here today was because last week we looked at why Jesus was above all and our text dealt specifically with the God that created that, this ideal state of goodness. So our text last week, we'll read it just to get us into this week. It was three verses. It was 15 to 17. It goes like this. He is the invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether, whether principalities or powers, all things were created in him and through him and for him. He himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. So Paul is giving us reasons, writing to a church in Colossae, Paul is giving us reasons why Jesus is just better. And the first set of reasons he gave us was because Jesus created all that you see. And so last week, we spent the week looking at how marvelous God's creation was. 
We talked about something called the Fermi Paradox. I don't know if you remember that at all. I just did that so you could impress your friends at lunch. But the Fermi Paradox basically just says that we should have found life by now. But then we started realizing after we've researched life that the variables that go into creating life are way bigger than we ever thought they would be. And what is created here is incredibly unique and hard to come by. It lends itself towards the majesty of the designer of all of it. And then it says not only... Did Jesus create all this stuff? So why is Jesus better? He is the creator of all of it. And then it says at the end, he sustains all of it. And we said, not only do we see his majesty in the creation, but we see his absolute power in the fact that he sustains it. And we threw some numbers out there. Like right now, we are traveling around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour. And the earth is rotating due east at about 800 miles an hour where we're at right now. That is fast. And if it ever stops for a second of one day, we all die, you know? So it's the idea that, that Jesus didn't just create, he holds all things together. Why is he better? Why is he above all? Because I can't do that. <laughs> He's above all because he created, he designed, he executed, and he holds together all that we see. And then today Paul's going to shift a little bit and give us part B of that conversation. Why is Jesus above all? Because here's the deal. God created all things good, but what we see necessarily today, right here, right now, in and through creation, sometimes doesn't reflect all the goodness of God when he first created, because the world's broken. And I know that because I left that hospital room with my child, <laughs> you know? I know that because this whole week, she's been really sick, and it's been a really hard week in our household. And yesterday, I was talking to my wife, and I said, they're going to ask you a question on Sunday morning on that stage. I said, they're going to ask you, what do you love most about your kid? And she looked at me and said, that's a tough week to ask that question. <laughs> and I said, man, I know. I said, don't say that tomorrow though. Lie for Jesus. Now there's a lot that we love about our kid. We just had to dig a little deeper this week when she doesn't let us sleep, you know? Now I know that sometimes we don't necessarily see the reflection of God in our world because as Christians, we would call that sin. If we're if we're centering this idea of God's good design around the idea of the peace in the Hebraic concept, the shalom of God in sin is the culpable disturbance of God's shalom. It's when it got broken. And so what Paul's going to do today is say that Jesus created all this and sustains all this, but that's not only why he's above all. He's also above all because he's beautiful. And here's the deal. I, I think the world is broken because we have a beauty problem. So I want to talk about beauty a little bit today. And for our purposes, let's define beauty. Beauty essentially is that which captivates our desires and shapes our decisions. So beauty is the things that we see that captivate us and drive us towards something. So what I'd, what I'd postulate is that all decisions we make, we make towards what we think are the most beautiful things. And the hard part is sometimes we're not proud of what we find beautiful. Last night, I was with some friends from this church, and, and we went to this gaming place in Grapevine where you can throw axes, because that's a thing now, um, and you can play all these video games. And we started to have a conversation just on video game culture and adults and how we used to play as kids because it's got old school games that make me feel young again, you know? And, and how much we used to play video games and if we play video games now and it turned to a place where some of them knew friends and family, adults grown men with kids that had lost a lot because they couldn't stop playing video games, you know? They'd lost a lot because they would spend hours and hours and hours playing games instead of playing with their children. 
And we talked about where that leads us and how hard that is. And here's my point, is you can't look at me and say, I think my kids are the most beautiful thing in the world and spend eight hours playing games and not your kids. You're telling me with your actions that even though you might not be proud of it, you think video games are more beautiful than your children because it's captivating your desire and driving your decisions. We have a beauty problem. And we see it. And you go to Adam and Eve in the garden, how the Bible describes the disturbance of God's good peace. The story goes that he said, hey, you're going to reflect my goodness, my beauty to everything, everything in the world. And there was a moment when they ate some fruit they weren't supposed to eat as the narrative goes. And what happened in that moment wasn't that apples are bad. What happened in that moment was they looked at this apple and for a moment they said, we are more beautiful than God. They chose their beauty over God's beauty. We have a beauty problem. So every time we choose sin, every time we choose things not of God, every time we choose things that hurt, I'd say it's because we don't understand or we, we, we have a twisted view of what's beautiful because that which is beautiful captivates our desires and drives our decisions. So today, what I want to do pretty plainly and pretty simply and pretty quickly for me, what I want to do is talk about why Jesus is beautiful because sometimes we forget Sometimes we forget that he is the most beautiful thing. And sometimes we pick other things over the beauty of Jesus. And and that's what Paul's going to do in our text today. Let's talk about the beauty of Jesus right after he talked about the power of Jesus. Because you can be powerful and not beautiful. And Paul's saying Jesus is both. That's why he's above all. But before we do that, we have two goals uh, at Crossroads on Sunday morning. We say it every single week. You're sick of it by now, but I just don't care. The first goal is we want to know God. And what we mean by that is we open the scriptures to find out who God is, because that's where he tells us who he is. So we open the scriptures and we dive in and we say, I want to know about this God that came to us, that that loves us, that created. I want to know God. And the second thing is we want to experience God. And what we mean by that is you can't fully know God unless you allow that knowledge of God to influence your daily actions. And so you can't say, I fully know God if the influence of God isn't manifesting itself in your life in some capacity. So we just don't want to win Jesus' jeopardy. We want to know and experience the good influence of God in our world. That's why we're here. And what that means for us is that we gather together and we believe that God is present and active and that he's going to do something in your spirit this morning. And so we fully anticipate that God is shaping us today. He's influencing us today so that we can show other people God's goodness when we leave this space. And that takes some work on our part, an attitude shift for, for some of us. We're not here to be entertained, we're here to grow. And so we're going to take some time at the beginning of this thing and just pray. We're going to ask that God uh, grows us. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to do something, to teach you this morning, to encourage you this morning, to edify you this morning, and give you time to pray. And then I ask that you pray for me that I, you know, do a good job today. So let's pray before we get going. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here on a Sunday morning so thankful that we can have open conversations about the beauty of Christ. As we have those conversations, I pray that you, um, you speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you, you shape our soul with what we need. I, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you edify and encourage and teach us today, that you reveal the beauty of Jesus in ways that we either haven't seen before or maybe we've forgotten. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take a couple seconds and just pray that the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to shape your soul this morning as we open the scriptures. And I ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job painting the picture of the beauty of Jesus as we talk through Colossians today. 
pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off. We left in verse 17. We'll be in verse 18. We'll throw some of the uh, verses on the screens, but let's get going. He, verse 18, is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. So he starts with this phrase, Paul does, moving out of the majesty of Christ in creation into, but that's not where the beauty of Christ stops or the majesty of Christ stops or the aboveness superiority of Christ stops. He says, he is the head of the body, the church. It's a really important phrase in the New Testament. If you don't know or are not familiar with how Paul writes, he oftentimes, in several of his other letters to other cities, to other churches, he talks about the church being a body. And he uses that analogy for a purpose. Uh, When he talks about it being a body, he does it because you got to understand, at this point in the first century, there are these disconnected, seemingly disconnected cities and groups and churches all over the known world that said they followed Jesus. And and up till this point, the expression of God that they see of this God has primarily been one encapsulated by a Jewish people, meaning that the Jews had the message to this God until now. And one thing Jesus did was to come and say, no, 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 that's not the way it's going to be. I came to save and redeem all. So when he says that you are like a body, what he's saying is there's different parts. Not of all of us are going to be Jewish anymore. He's reminding them when they say that they're a body, that there's fingers and toes and arms and legs, that differences are good because if we were all toes, that's just disgusting, you know? He's reminding them that difference and diversity is God's intended purpose in creation because it shows his majesty and depth of creative power. Because oftentimes we fall too easily into making God look like us. That's what the Jews did a lot in the New Testament. That's what we do now. We make God look like we want God to look like. We make God look like um, one of us because we love God and we love ourselves. What he's telling them there is that God is glorified in diversity and remember that and seek it out because God made all people, whether they're in Asia Minor or whether they're in Jerusalem or whether they're in Rome, don't forget God is glorified in diversity. He's not just the God of the pleated pants wearing, you know, Republican voting, Chick-fil-A sandwich eating crowd that we find in Flower Mound, which is just fine. He's saying there's a space in the kingdom of God for the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Come on, you know? But really, he's reminding them first and foremost when he uses languages of body that we are different parts and don't forget that. And, And at this point in the scriptures, at this point in the course of the church, they needed to hear that. Because there's so many different expressions of faith in different places. Now, especially that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were coming in to the message to the kingdom of God. And so when Paul says, you have a body, he's expressing differences. When he says Jesus is the head, he uses that term in two different ways in his writings. The first one is kind of what you'd probably think, is that the head is in charge of everything else. Ephesians 1, and God put all things under Christ's feet. And he gave him to the church, the head over all things. This is the head of household idea. I'm the one that drives where we go. I'm the one that tells you what we're going to be about. And Jesus does that. He gives us expectations and he gives us kind of running orders as the church. When we do CBC 101 here, which is our new people class, um, when I used to teach it, I would tell people all the time, This is our mission statement. We're going to follow Jesus and make disciples. And look, if you land at Crossroads, awesome. We have so many great churches in this community. But if they have a mission statement that doesn't have something to do with that narrative, run, run away, because that's what Jesus told us to do. 
He's the head of the church. And he said, you are going to bring my good influence to all the people of the world. You're going to follow me and you're going to make other people follow me because it's best for them because I'm the designer of this place. Look back to last week, you know? And so he says, you are going to do these things. He gives us direction. But when Paul talks about head, there's also another kind of language that he uses. If you go to Colossians 2.19, he says that Jesus is the head from whom the whole body, supported and knit together through its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. What he's saying is that it's not just about authority here. It's about unity. Like, like Jesus is the thing that binds all these broken pieces together because for any other reason, you wouldn't see how they fit or why they stick. He is the glue that keeps us together. There's a song we sang, the second song we sang, um, third song, second song in the second set. It talks, it's really just the words of a council that was had in 325 BC or AD, the Council of, of Nicaea. That's a big deal. There are seven large councils that kind of, where they hashed out theology, and this is the first one. And it's a big deal because if you understand the nature of the Christian faith in the first three or four centuries, it wasn't a pleasant one to be a part of. You had different parts of the first four centuries where Christianity was allowed but never celebrated. But for a large part of it, Christianity was not celebrated, nor was it allowed. It was beaten down. Nero is probably the biggest example of that in 62, 63, 64 AD. The Christian movement started gaining some traction and he wasn't too happy with that because when you say Jesus is Lord, it takes away from you saying Caesar is Lord. And so he started beating them and imprisoning them and putting them in the Colosseum and being eaten by animals. He actually used to use Christians as lamps in his garden at night, you know, as he lit them on fire. One of the bigger ones was Diocletian in the 250 AD range. He again started beating back Christians. And why this is a big deal is because in 325, the Council of Nicaea happened. In 313, another emperor took over and he had an edict. And he said, I am now not only going to let Christianity keep going, I'm going to make Christianity the state religion. And for the first time in the history of the world, Christianity could be talked about and celebrated in public. Big deal. So in 325, you had 300 bishops come together and they hobbled in because they'd been beaten and probably lost loved ones for their belief in Jesus. And they came together, all very different, with all very different stories, and they did it because of Jesus. That was it. That was the glue that kept them together. There wasn't anything to gain off of it. They'd lost enough off of it. They said, we are going to come together and in spite of our brokenness, in spite of the differences, because Jesus is enough. And in that first council, they just sat there and talked about the nature, the very nature of the God they serve. And why we say that and why that makes a difference is because when we talk about Jesus being the head of the church, we have a culture that celebrates celebrity and sometimes the church falls in the middle of that. And sometimes we forget that, look, the church, big C, the movement of God in our world to influence people towards the Lord and his ways, that is in all ways united under the banner of Jesus and not any one person, not any one preacher, not any one worship, uh, not any one, one worship band, not any one building. That means that Jesus is the leader of this group regardless of if I have a good Sunday or not. Because sometimes we forget that people don't run this show, that people aren't the purpose of the church, that the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church don't, ultimately they're not in charge of, of keeping the church alive. And why that matters is because people will fail you, even pastors, you know? They'll let you down because I will let you down. My staff will tell you, I've been doing this for a couple years now, they'll tell me the first time I let them down. It hasn't happened yet, at least when I ask them personally face to face, you know? And that's the story of this church too, if you go back very far. 
We've had pastors let us down before. And what that does is in the middle of deep, deep heartbreak, it reminds us that just because we're let down by people, we're never let down by Jesus and the church isn't going anywhere. It gives us confidence amidst the brokenness of humanity. I remember when I first took the senior pastor job here, I had a couple people come and they said, hey, are we going to change the name of the church? Um, you know, kind of a rebrand. And, and I said, no. Um, and they wanted to know why not. And, and, and I said, well, a couple reasons. One is, you know, we're a grace-based church. And sure, in our community, sometimes when people hear this church's name, they think of the things that happened in the past. But, but here's the deal. I think a grace-based church says, this is who we are, good, bad, and indifferent. And my God is bigger than all those things. Where Paul says that I'm made strong in weakness because God is glorified. And, and the second thing I'd say is because at the end of the day, we want to remind people that this church isn't about a fancy name and it's not about a building with basketball goals in it that we can worship in and it's not about a preacher and it's not about the chairs and it's not about the carpet. It's about Jesus. We come here in the morning because of Jesus and that's enough. That's enough. On my good days and bad days, that's enough. So Paul gets up, or he writes his, his friends in Colossae, and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about his relationship to your gathering. He is the head of the church. He is what unites you, is what keeps you together. He is why you gather. May that be enough. And then he goes on, and he says, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. And we start to see Paul peel back the layers of what he's talking about when we talk about the beauty of Jesus. So he says, Jesus was the beginning. It's a common phrase used when, when Paul talks about Jesus. It's actually one that Jesus used himself a couple times. He would talk about the idea that he came here to create something new. So he'd walk in the first century and he'd say, the kingdom of God is now here, not was here and is now being rebooted. He'd say, the kingdom of God is here, right here and right now. Follow it. Let me tell you what it looks like. He had this message that something new was happening right here and right now. Paul's going to say it's the beginning of a new way. N.T. Wright said, God's plan is not merely to sum up the old creation, but to inaugurate a new creation in and through him, in and through Jesus. So what he's going to do is he's going to come into the sin of humanity, the disturbance of God's peace and goodness, and he's going to say, I'm the beginning, and then he's going to describe what that is. He says, I'm the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And what he means by that is that he's the first person that's ever lived that death didn't define their end date. He's the first person that actually had victory over death, and death is always the result of sin. It kills. It killed in the garden. <laughs> It kills uh, all that we see around us. Death or, or sin kills. And so Jesus says, I have come to create a new way. And here's what it looks like. It looks like that thing that defines sinful people no longer defining sinful people because I came and I've defeated it. And that is beautiful. See, I'm the first one that death has not defined. Romans 6 says it like this. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he's never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Sometimes we get convoluted and clouded about what things are actually beautiful. And Paul's saying the thing that we fear most, we don't have to fear because Jesus, and that's beautiful. Because he mastered death. He was able to do what nobody else could do. He talks about the idea that because he mastered death, look at the result of it, he himself may become the first in all things. 
So what it says is if you really see and understand that, G- that Jesus Christ conquered death, which is what our entire faith is based on. Paul talks about it later on in another letter. He said, if it's not for the resurrection, then we have no hope and we should just go home. Our hope is gone. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because he died and he rose again. He's offering that to us. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, if you truly see somebody that beat back death, the only appropriate response is to make him first in all things. You see the beauty of the power of someone to beat the thing that kills us all. And so it says that he will be made first in all things. And I love that. Because sometimes I think as Americans... um, we buy into the myth or the lie of, of absolute freedom, that, that freedom is our best good, you know, that we need to fight for, and I believe in fighting for freedom, but that freedom is ultimately going to set us free. And, and what stories in the Bible talk about, and what Jesus talks about, and what Paul talks about, and what we were made for is not necessarily that our best good is freedom, but we were always made to follow a God who, through rules, regulations, and order, sets us free to live the best way we were supposed to as he created it. Because absolute freedom, in the end, just leads to the tyranny of self and chaos. But Jesus says, no, I've come so that you might exalt me above all else. And then Paul would say that we might be slaves to that God who is so beautiful. And when he says that in the New Testament, he doesn't mean that in a bad way. He means in a really good way. Because if we are indebted and we are serving something that is ultimately good, then what we serve and what we do will be good as well. Because it's the most beautiful And as we begin to see Jesus in his beauty, as we begin to see Jesus' life as beautiful, as we begin to see the fullness of Jesus' beauty, what we see is a God who conquers. It's kind of like, have you guys seen the show Undercover Boss ever? Uh, It's a show where I've seen a couple episodes, and it's one of those guilty pleasure shows. I don't want to admit to people that that I watch, but sometimes I do. And they take like these CEOs of these Fortune Ones and Fives, and they dress them up in a mustache and have them go work the fry line at Arby's, you know? Um, and for a week or two, they work these really blue-collar jobs with these blue-collar people, and the whole point is that they know, um, they know more about the company that they, that they lead. And there's a scene at the end, always, 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 there's a scene at the end where this guy gets revealed to the people that he worked with, you know? And, and they're blown away that they worked next to the CEO and had no idea the entire time, Right? Well, what this is saying, what Paul's trying to say is that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Sometimes you forget, but you you don't see the full beauty of Christ because you forget that he beat back death. You don't understand the beauty, the magnitude of the beauty of Jesus that you're looking at. One commentator said the exaltation of Christ after his work on the cross gives him the status which he's always enjoyed as a right. What Paul's saying is that if we fully understand that Jesus conquered death, then we can begin to see the scope of his beauty, the scope of his goodness, the scope of his might, the scope of his power. He's saying that as we peel back the layers into the person and work of Jesus, we begin to see the majesty that is him that sometimes we're clouded with, that we miss, that we forget. So he says, Jesus is the head of the church and he's the firstborn of the dead so that he may become first in all things. And he goes on to say, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son. In the last week, we looked at verse 15, and it says that he's the image of the invisible God. And we we talked about the idea of image there. 
That word in the Greek has two different meanings depending on context. One is I'm a reflection of and two is I bring the presence of and that's what it meant, the latter. That Jesus wasn't just like a, a figure on a coin pointing back to God but that he brought the presence of God into the spaces that he walked and went. This takes it a step farther. This says that Jesus not only bought, brought the presence of God but, but it says that Jesus literally was all the things that God is. So, for example, to go back to that Council of Nicaea, in 325, what they argued about was the substance of Jesus. Because they had all the writings at that point, but maybe not all bound together in all the different cities and churches. And there was a bishop there named Arius. And he was teaching that Jesus was a reflection of God, but that he was created by God. So he wasn't fully the same essence that God the Father was. Look, if you lost your legs and loved ones to a devotion to Jesus being God, that's going to make you mad. It is. And so there's fun stories you can read. Research Google, St. Nick and, and um, the Council of Nicaea, right? And you'll get a really interesting perspective on Santa. But um, he, uh, he started talking about this stuff and people got really mad and they said, no, that, that's not what we believe. And the church came out with essentially doctrine at that point that we use today that says Jesus and God and what the terms that they use say are the same substance, the same essence. What that means is that all that God is is seen in all that Jesus is. One commentator said the importance of the language is to indicate that the completeness of God's self-revelation was focused in Christ. That the wholeness of God's interaction with the universe is summed up in Christ. I love that phrase. The wholeness of God's interaction in the universe is summed up with Christ. And then he goes so far as to say that God was pleased with this. It's this depiction that Jesus isn't just the presence of God. He's the fullness of God. So if you ever want to know God, look at Jesus. Everything that Jesus is, is what God is. And everything that God is, is found in who Jesus is. So if we go to places and churches that say that you need more than just Jesus, we'd say, no, we don't. He's the full picture of God always. Before the creation of the world and forever. That word there in the Greek literally means forever and ever and ever. It's not temporary. So he says, Jesus is beautiful. He's not just the image of something. He's the fullness of God. He wasn't defined by death, but he has power over the thing that we fear the most. And then he keeps going on to say in verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. And through him were the things on earth or in heaven. So you get this theme of reconciliation in the text. And we talked a lot about that a few weeks ago when we talked about verses 13 and 14. Because theme of reconciliation, and one of the beautiful things about reconciliation in the Bible is it's always God moving and God motivated, which means that, that we never begin the process of reconciling ourselves to God. God started it. And why that matters is because it's not something you can earn. This is grace, but something God freely, freely, freely gives. And I'm going to say that message again and again and again because every day I wake up, I have to fight this inner voice that tells me that I've earned something because I'm better at things than other people. And they probably do the same because they're better at other things than me. We have this inner voice in this culture that says that we are enough, that we've earned enough, that we are the cause of good things. And the very basic of the gospel is that when God reconciled, he did it because he, not we. He did it because he is good, because he is gracious, because he is loving. And so it says, Jesus, through him, he reconciled all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. I think one of my favorite things about this text is where it lands, this idea of reconciliation. He's going to reconcile all things. 
I was at a wedding a couple weeks ago. It was a beautiful wedding. And um, I knew the couple very well, and I knew the families very, very well. You know, I have a one-and-something-year-old kid, and I thought that moment, that moment when you're in the hospital room and they finally come to the world is the best one ever, and it's the most completed form of joy I could have. It's the most completed form of glory that, you know, all the things. I'm at this wedding, and there's these two grown people saying that we're going to start our own life now, so kind of a completeness to weddings that they bring. Like, it's now my family, my next chapter, all my things. Um, And as a parent, hopefully it's a moment that you can say, hey, I've done an okay job. Um, you should tap the brakes on parenting a little bit, you know? And I'm, I'm watching this wedding, and it's the first dance. And um, the mom of the bride is here, and the father of the groom is here. And my wife taps me and says, look at the mom of the bride, who we know well. And she's sitting there, and she's closing her eyes, and she's singing the song and swaying from side to side, weeping out of joy, you know? And I look at the father of the groom, and he's crying and videotaping the whole thing. And I thought to myself, maybe the best moment full of, of all the feels in raising a kid isn't when they're born, but when you get done with this parenting thing. I know that you're never done, millennials, joke, 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 but you know, you know what I get. It's a beautiful expression. And here's why I tell you that story, is because I, I don't think... I don't think the purpose of creation was ever the creative act in the first place. I think the climax of creation has always been the reconciliation act through Jesus. Because here's what we have to talk about. We can talk about why Jesus is beautiful. You gotta get to somewhat of the fact of why God created in the first place if he full well knew that humanity would fall. So the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God is gonna stipulate a couple things for us. One, that God knows all things. But two, omniscience, if it's true omniscience, isn't just that you know that all things that are going to happen, but you know all the things that could happen, all the possibilities that don't play out. So God knows not only my first kid's name and my second kid's name if that ever happens and all the things that are gonna happen in my marriage going forward in this church, he knows what would have happened if I never would have taken the job in the first place and kept driving trucks cross-country, Right? He knows all those answers because he's truly omniscient. I had a prof in college that would say it like this. He'd say, so before God created, he looked at the possibilities of creation and said, when I create, I know humanity's going to fall. I know that they're going to need to be redeemed. And I'm going to create plan number 497 because in the end, that gives me the most glory. It's full omniscience that he created and reconciled and redeemed because it gives him the most glory. And why I say that is because I think the fall gives us a fuller picture of the love of God. I think the Jesus that we see now, we see more of his beauty than Adam did in the garden. Because when we fall, we recognize we need God and we see grace for the first time. And if you don't know that you need grace because you've never fallen, you don't have a full picture of what love truly, truly, truly is. So why is Jesus beautiful, Paul writes? Because he reconciled when you didn't deserve it. Why is Jesus beautiful? Because now you know the depth of love that only comes with falling. And God allowed that. Didn't cause it, doesn't want it, but he allowed that. Because in that we see a fuller picture of the beauty of Jesus. And the more we see of the beauty of Jesus, and the more we make known the beauty of Jesus, the more apt we are to choose Jesus because beauty drives our decisions and captivates our desires. So what Paul is trying to say in this text is, what do you think of the beauty of Jesus? How beautiful do you think he is? He's not above all simply because he made it all. He's above all because he is redeeming it all. And the climax of creation is seeing the fullest expression of the beauty of Christ, and that's only seen through a God who reconciles at his own cost. It's beautiful. 
And the more that we peel back the layers of that kind of God, we see the beauty of that kind of God, the more we choose him. I think marriage is a pretty good example of this. It's you first get married and you get married because of the awe of how beautiful the person you're marrying is. And over time, beauty fades. It's just true, right? So you're 60 and 70 years old and you've been married for 30 or 40 or 50 years and, and you know, body parts are in different places and there's more wrinkles, but you know what? I love couples that look at me and say, I'm more in love with my wife and she's more beautiful to me now than she was before because there's depth to it. Because we've been through the fall and because we see the resurrected and reconciling Jesus, we see a more beautiful Jesus who he's always been, but we didn't see in the first place because we have a beauty problem. And so Paul is saying, remember that God's not just big and God can't just create, but remember that God is beautiful and that beauty entails resurrecting, it entails a fullness of deity, and it entails reconciling at his own cost. It adds depth to our understanding of the goodness of God. And he has an adverbial clause in there. It says that he is reconciling all things and just as a quick little one-off, I love that phrase. I grew up in a Christian culture that just taught that accepting Jesus was fire insurance. I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in this area, so it's some form of Baptist thing, you know? Um, the whole idea that when they presented the gospel, they said, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? And that's a true statement. I just think it's a reductionary view of the gospel. So when, when Jesus died, it wasn't just so that you'd go to heaven. When Jesus came to earth, he said, my kingdom is inaugurated here now, live into it. I think we are supposed to show people glimpses of the beauty of God everywhere we go. So he said, I came to reconcile not just your soul, but all things. Because from the beginning, when we see the disturbance of God's peace, the shalom of God being broken through the sin of Adam and Eve, at the very beginning of that, we see that it breaks more than just their relationship with God. As God is talking about what their sin did to them, he says that it's broken my relationship with you in Genesis 3. We can no longer have the same relationship. He's saying you're going to fight with your wife. You're going to fight with your kids. It's going to break your world relationally between each other. And finally, he says you are meant to cultivate the earth, and now that's going to be difficult. The earth's going to fight back. So your relationships have all been broken because of sin, and I'm here to restore and redeem all of those things, me, each other, and the world that you're supposed to cultivate in the first place. He's saying that you are supposed to see and you are supposed to live out the message of the beauty of Jesus that's seen by the reconciliation of all things. Romans 8 talks about how creation is waiting, it's crying out, it's groaning for God to come and redeem it. N.T. Wright said God will eventually remake the world and its power structures so that they will reflect the glory, his glory instead of human arrogance. And I love that. So what Paul does is I think he's making a case for the beauty of God to a people that might have missed it. I think he's making a beauty case about how we need to choose Jesus because we choose whatever we deem beautiful, whether we're proud of it or not. And I love how he starts this whole thing. I said we'd come back to it. He starts this thing by saying that Jesus is the head of the body of the church that the climax of creation has been the reconciliation of the world so that we can see a fuller picture of the beauty of Jesus. And one of the most daunting and beautiful things in all of the scriptures is that when Jesus says he's the head of the body of the church, we're the body. And here's the hard part, is that we, we are given the message of reconciliation is what Corinthians is gonna say. It's saying that God chooses to use us to show people his goodness. Now that to me is daunting because I know me, you know? I know me. He says again and again in the scriptures, he gathers 
the 12 disciples. He gathers the 12 disciples, 12 guys that had been passed over to work in the spiritual world as rabbis. He gathers these 12 people and he says, follow me. And, and, and some of them didn't have great reputations. And then he gets with them and he says, hey guys, I'm about to leave, but you guys are going to take this message. You guys are going to take this message into the world. And I can bet you Peter was like, no, stop it. I'm not ready. I just, I feel like I see that Peter in the Bible. He's like, we can't do this quite yet. And Jesus says, I'm going to use you to bring this message of reconciliation into the world. One writer says the church is the elected, is elected as the particular means by which particular anticipations of the promise of reconciliation of all things in Christ are achieved. It's our job to show people the beauty of Jesus because we choose what's beautiful. And my question today is how beautiful do we see Jesus? How do we show others in our lives that Jesus is beautiful, that he's worth choosing, that he's better than? How do we proclaim that message and that name? One of my favorite quotes by a commentator said, most of what the world sees of the whole, of the whole body, it sees not of the head, but in the body, the church. So I think when Paul writes about reconciliation, when the Bible talks about reconciliation, I think it's the climax of all things that we might see the full beauty of Jesus and I think he does it as we live our day to day. So really the challenge here is to us as a people to live out and believe in the beauty of Jesus. Because my question is still, how beautiful do we see Jesus? And Paul says he beat death. He is the fullness of God. And even though he didn't have to, even though he didn't have to, he gave you grace. And if you understand you, you see the beauty in that kind of God. And we choose what we think is the most beautiful. So I thought this week, as I was studying and praying and going through it and taking care of sick kids, man, I've been overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of a God who would do all those things. It's been my prayer that I don't forget because it's really easy to. So we're going to end today with communion. And, and why we end with communion, why we do communion at Crossroads isn't because God's going to love us more if we eat gluten-free bread and dip it in grape juice every single Sunday. Why we take communion is because it's a reminder, it's a reminder of what Jesus did. It's a reminder of his beauty in a world vying for your affections to call other things more beautiful. So as we go to the table and we dip some bread and some grape juice, we remember of the sacrifice of God that moved towards us to reconcile all things. And as we peel back the depth of that statement, we see beauty upon beauty upon beauty. We see a fullness to Christ that sometimes we forget. So as we take communion, we see that Jesus is worthy and beautiful. So I'm gonna pray for us and after I get done, you can feel free to go to the table. Um, whatever you see fit and then we'll end with, uh, with one more song. So let me pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're not just powerful, but you're beautiful. I'm thankful that you didn't just create and sustain, but you reconciled. I'm thankful that I get to be a part of <laughs> describing your beauty to the world around me. I'm thankful that we can have conversations like this. As we take communion, remind us of what you gave up so that we might live. Remind us of a God that's good, that came near. Remind us that you are beautiful and you're worthy. And may that, <laughs> may that drive us towards you more. May that help us choose Jesus. May that help us show the world his beauty. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.